tonight are special challenges to loving. Thought about calling this talk How to Develop Unanimous Lovingness or How to Develop Bodhisattva Consciousness. Not at all suggesting that I have it, but that I'm convinced it's the only way to go. And it really seems hard when you think about it, loving all beings, including enemies. Today we've been working with the category of the enemy. Tomorrow we'll introduce all beings. And it's really important because to do anything else really disturbs the essential peace of mind. But to arrive at that understanding really takes a a kind of newer and wider vision because thinking about loving enemies or thinking of loving all beings, people and beings you don't know, really flies in the face of conventional rationality. It makes sense to try to love yourself. Everybody understands that. Or your benefactor. Or good friends. Even neutral people. That makes sense. <clears throat> but an enemy... The mind, the the thoughts come up immediately. Why should I try to love somebody who hurt me personally or who hurts other people like a dictator or even with all beings? How can I do that? I can't even quite grasp the idea of all beings. Or why should I do that? Especially if I can't grasp the idea of all beings. Ultimately, it's for ourselves that we do it. Because wishing ill is painful. Resentment is painful. Somehow we have to rescue ourselves from rancor and bitterness and resenting, from wishing ill. If we remember our shared situation, our fragile shared life situation, with all beings. That's one of the routes to developing that kind of spaciousness of mind. There was an article in the New York Times recently about a prison in Huntsville, Texas, that's done a new experiment of a large number of people who are living on death row, who are waiting for their execution date. They've exhausted all of their um, possibilities for reprieves. Or if they're involved in reprieves, there's some question about whether they'll get one. But instead of just languishing or waiting in in separate cells, waiting for their execution date, they've set up a factory there and they make clothing. They make clothing for uh, inmates in that prison and they make clothing for other workers in the Louisiana state, in the Texas state system. And so here are all these people, many of them having done grievous, grievous crimes on very hurtful on other people to warrant being on death row, to warrant having a a death sentence. And here they are all sewing uniforms in a factory, knowing that very shortly down the road is their death date coming up. And yet here they are all sewing away. And the point of the article was that the morale is very good in that, in that tailor shop. And the, uh, 
the atmosphere between the people working, the, the uh, prisoners, and the guards is very relaxed. They have minimal security, uh, minimal problems, whereas in, in, in penitentiaries, in prisons, usually there are all kinds of skirmishes and high vigilance on the part of the guards. The guards are very relaxed. There are no problems. Nobody seems to fight. People seem very warm and interested in each other. And the per- person who wrote the article interviewed various prisoners all waiting to, for their date to come up sewing away and asked them about how it is that everyone there is so essentially kind to each other. And one of the people there said, well, everyone here knows that everyone here is going to die. But everyone here knows that everyone here is going to die. Everyone everywhere knows that everybody else is going to die. But somehow we don't remember it until we're in that kind of special situation. We have fragile bodies. Even under the best circumstances, if they hold up the best possible, they're not eternal bodies. We have very fragile emotional systems. Sometimes the most amazing thing to me is emotions. They seem so strange to me. You know, if someone had gallbladder problems and they said, well, I have a pain in my stomach or a pain in my liver, you could get it because you know where the gallbladder is in the liver. But we have so much pain from hurt feelings. And they say, well, where are your feelings? But I don't even know where they are, but we certainly have terrible pain from hurt feelings, which is really fragile. Fragile bodies, fragile feelings. If we thought about the fact that we're all fragile, that when we say to somebody, I'll see you later, it's really a calculated guess. It's an actuarial guess. Say, I'll see you next week, or I'll see you tonight. We don't know. I, um, I'm a psychotherapist when I'm not teaching, and I mostly see couples in relationship. And sometimes, not always, because it's kind of a tricky thing to do, but Sometimes, if it's exactly the right time, and I can feel that it's all right to do it, if I'm working with one or two people, and they're struggling with some relational um, adversity, some ill will about the other person that seems so entrenched that they can't see around it, where what the other person has done in terms of wounding them or hurting them or disappointing them yet again is so grievous that they can't possibly move and they're stuck in that pain, is somehow suggest, what if that person didn't come home tonight or didn't get up tomorrow morning? It's a kind of a startling thing to do. I've thought about it sometimes myself when I've gotten upset with somebody, somebody that's in a close relationship with me. Say, so what if they died suddenly? It's an amazing thing when somebody dies, everything that was good about them that you'd forgotten suddenly revives itself. Eulogies are always amazing. People seem much better in the eulogy than they did while they were alive. <clears throat> so if ill will is painful, why do we do it? 
it seems like a perverse thing. Nobody likes to be angry. It doesn't really feel good to be angry. It's kind of a toxin in the body. It's not comfortable. But why do we do it? Why do we get entrenched in an anger and then keep it going? Mostly I think that the psyche thinks it's a protective measure. It's actually an abortive protective measure. It doesn't work very well. But I think it's trying to protect ourselves from the pain of disappointment or sadness or fear. I think it's actually covering up disappointment or sadness or fear. When we've been threatened in some way or hurt in some way, we have the idea that anger protects us. I was thinking, when I was thinking about this talk, that maybe it does sometimes in the moment, in certain moments. If we're um, accosted in the street, someone's going to attack us. Maybe if we get frightened and get angry and shout at them, maybe they run away. Or maybe if we get angry enough, we run away. Or maybe somehow we survive that situation. Maybe anger frightens the other person off or is effective in that moment. If the anger is useful at all, it's useful just in that moment to somehow save us out of the situation. But it un- outlives usually its normal protect, its limited protective value. Because often after the event, after we've been hurt, we keep that anger going for years and years and years and years and years. The saddest thing I think is when I hear somebody say, I'm never going to forgive so and so the rest of my life. I think that's so sad. So and so, whoever it is, is cruising around the world doing whatever they're doing. In the meantime, here is this person perpetuating the pain that the other person did to them by confining themselves to a tightened heart around it. It's a very peculiar thing. It used to be um, a standard kind of uh, joke in old westerns that someone would get put in a jail in an old western town and put into a cell and be standing, and the cell is not locked, that's a joke. You're supposed to see that the jailer doesn't lock the jail. And the person is in it and rattling the bars and shaking it and trying to get out, but all they have to do is put their hand out and open the door and go out. And in fact, I think what people often do is they take the key, they reach out, they lock themselves in and throw the key away. That's what we're doing when we say, I'm never going to forgive so-and-so the whole rest of my life. When we're out of the situation and we're safe, we could let it go. We could remember what they did and we could avoid that person forever if we needed to, the person we were in relationship with. We could even try to take measures to stop them from doing whatever they're doing or did that made us so angry. But we don't have to live with bitterness or with rancor. That's the part that hurts and outlives even sometimes what happened. Somebody, a friend of mine, told me a story on the plane here the other day. She said I could tell the story about her grandmother who's quite old and is losing her memory substantially and who for a long time has had a, uh, or has not had a relationship with her mother, has had an on-the-outs relationship with her mother. Over some unhappiness that happened some time back. 
And now over many, many years, they haven't talked, spoken with each other. And the grandmother said to my friend recently, and she's very forgetful now, do you remember why your mother and I are not speaking to each other? <laughs> and my friend, <laughs> thinking of what would be the kind thing to do, said, no, I don't remember. Grandmother said, I don't remember either, but I remember that I'm mad at her. <laughs> That's so sad. Mostly we remember that. Here comes so-and-so, I'm mad at them, and we already are tense, but we don't even remember why. There's a part, <clears throat> there's an explanation in Huckleberry Finn of a feud. Somebody says, Huck, what's a feud? He says, I don't know. It's one of those things where some folks come over and they do something bad to your family. And then all the brothers get together and they go back and do something bad to the other person's family who did the badness. And so by and by, the other person's family, they all get together, all the brothers, and they come back and do something bad to your family. And then your family gets together, all the brothers, and they go back and do something bad. And by and by, a lot of years go by, and nobody remembers what started it all, but they keep on doing it back and forth. They remember there's a feud. That's a feud. You can not bear ill will, not live in bitterness or in rancor, and still remember what people did, and use some sort of discerning wisdom about who you want to hang out with. Somebody asked today, well, if I forgive somebody, do I have to love them? Love is really difficult. How about just forgiving and not loving? I think when we forgive people who have been really difficult or painful for us, we might not so much clue into loving them, but often to feelings of compassion about their situation. It's really important, the idea of forgiving. Somebody, a yogi once, had a wonderful line, and he, I, it was a great line. I said, can I use that line when I teach? He said, only if you say Tom said it. And this is a number of years ago, but I have never, and I've said it many times, but I have never said it without saying, Tom says, <laughs> forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. That's a great line, isn't it? Forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. Forgiving does not mean forgetting. It just means forgiving. It means doing whatever you have to do, but without ill will. And it reflects a certain amount of right understanding, really, that the person who's doing or who did the hurtful act is in pain. Sometimes the instruction is given um, in some of the instructions that the Buddha gave about how to work with feelings of anger when they come up. One of the ways of working with it is to reflect on the unpleasant karmic fruits that will accrue to a person who's doing hurtful things so that maybe compassion will arise in you when you think about somebody doing or who has done some hurtful things and then you reflect on probably the difficulties that will accrue to that person sometime in the future. The idea is that hurtful behavior might lead to future pain. And I quite prepared to think that, it, that hurtful behavior probably does lead to future pain. 
I think it definitely reflects present pain. Happy people don't do hurtful things. If we remember that, we really feel sad, compassionate for people who are behaving hurtfully. It can't be coming from a place of peace. That person's in trouble. They're in pain. Happy people usually aren't very irritable. I was thinking about an example that Joseph was giving, I guess, this morning or last night about, um, probably last night, talking about the hindrances, that the, the shape of the mind on which the activity falls is really the determiner of how we rate the activity. That's such a peculiar thing to say. I'll give you an example. Suppose you're having a disappointing, um, um, sad day with someone that you've been in relationship with and the relationship is falling apart and you have misgivings and you have grief and you are sad and they've hurt you and you've hurt them and you have a discussion all afternoon and it's coming to naught and everybody's nerves are frazzled and everybody hasn't gotten their point across, have been understood, and you go out to eat dinner with that person because everybody gets hungry, and they eat their soup with a fork, and you think to yourself, what a clod on top of everything else, this idiot eats his soup with a fork. Another scenario, you're in love with somebody. It's a wonderful day, you go to the beach, you lie on the sand, You read poetry, you make love, you swim. On the way back, you stop in a restaurant. He eats his soup with a fork. (laughs) You say to yourself, how cute, look at that. (laughs) Eating the soup with a fork. It's the same activity. It's the same activity. It falls on the mind in a different way. When I first began to do metta practice, I didn't know much about it. I I kind of got the hang as we started here. Since we started with, I started just as you did with a benefactor and myself and a good friend. I could see where it was moving. And I thought to my, and I I, I guess I knew something about I was going to work up to an enemy. And I thought, well, piece of cake, I don't have any enemies. It'll be really easy. Maybe some of you thought that too. And I didn't have anybody who was having a big feud with or a vendetta with, so it wasn't. And I've been really fortunate in my life that I hadn't been in any terrible abusive situations. I didn't, a lot of people have heavier work to do than I did about that. But I thought, well, I don't have any problems, no enemies. When I came up to that place, I had to kind of scrounge around in the mind, find an enemy. And I thought of a person I knew who got on my nerves a little bit. A person in my life, somebody that was minimally involved with, that I realized I didn't like, had a little ill will on her. And so I started to work with her. First of all, I had to think of what it was that she had done good, because that's how you work with the metta for everyone. And all of a sudden, I remembered some really nice kindness that she had done for me and for one of my daughters that I'd totally forgot about in my not liking her. She'd really done a nice thing sometime. 
And when I thought of that, I felt better about her. And when I felt better about her, I learned a lot about myself. I learned that probably the reason I didn't like her is that the trait about her that I didn't like was one of my principal shadow traits, something about myself that I don't particularly like. So it was a really important learning for me. And what's more, once I had sort around the mind and I found, yeah, that person, never mind that I have a view of myself as loving everybody, once I allowed it to come to mind that actually I had a little bit of irritableness at this person, lo and behold, I found that I had quite a little grudge list of other irritableness about other people. Not horrible stuff, but... I discovered that I'd kind of kept a little secret list, you know, like the Mikado, I've got a little list of people who never will be missed. <clears throat> and that somehow I'd filed that away, and they hadn't done grievous things to me. Someone had insulted me, someone had criticized me too badly um, for some minor thing, and I'd, I'd filed it away, so to speak, forgotten about it, but there it is, lurking around in the heart. It was very surprising to me. In a certain way, that was a very big relief because I decided, well, good, you know, if I can bring to light this little list, which I thought was a little list, always turned out to be a little longer than I had anticipated, (laughs) then actually maybe I release a certain amount of energy that's bound up in keeping that secret list and then I really will be a more loving person. After all, this is the path of purification of the heart. Kind of... um, um, justified my belief in that as I see it's a true path it really works what I hadn't been prepared about is I found in subsequent practice of metta that not only did I as the as the mind and heart settled down not only did I present myself with my little list of displeasures with other people but also my displeasures with myself lo and behold It's kind of a spontaneous searching moral inventory that happens. At least in my experience, not only what other people have done not right that I've filed away, but the stuff that I've done that wasn't quite right that I've filed away. That was really startling. Sometimes it gets demoralizing. All of a sudden, I didn't ask for it. You know, the people in the 12-step programs know that searching moral inventory is one of the things you do a spontaneous searching moral inventory, one that you don't ask for. It's really quite dismaying, especially you know, if you have any amount of investment and I'm a pretty nice person and I really, I really mostly do the right thing. All of a sudden, to have my sittings full of I forgot to do this and this one I overlooked and this one I was insensitive to and get really demoralized about yourself... I did. And then I think to myself, well, once again, I think this really does prove it's the path of purification. Ultimately, I'm happy about it. It's not so pleasant while it's happening, but ultimately I'm happy about it. I think part of why our rancor stays past where it's helpful is that we rehearse our stories so much. We tell our stories to ourselves and to everybody else. We tell them to ourselves over and over mostly about what bad happened to us. I think we think we're protecting ourselves from further hurt. If I'll just remember 
those situations where I was most hurt, I won't get into them again and I won't get hurt again. Actually, I think we are just trapping ourselves in our own story. I had the most amazing experience a couple of years ago. Where I live in uh, north of San Francisco in a small town near there, I went to uh, a certain appliance store. I never tell about what since I live in a small town and uh, it's a great story and I have a feeling that if I told people which store in which town, everyone would rush out and go. This is a story. Took a certain appliance, let's call it a vacuum cleaner, it wasn't actually, <laughs> to an appliance store and when I drove up <clears throat> to get it fixed and when I drove up there was a sign in the window that said, um, People are great. Business is wonderful. Life is good. <laughs> so that's an interesting start. I go in, and I had to wait. For, there were a few people in there getting their vacuum cleaners fixed. And I noticed there was a particular quality. It's a one-person operation in the store. And I noticed that the man doing the store had a way of actually totally devoting himself to the person that he was with really so interested in them, like they were the only person in the world, totally solicitous, totally not in a hurry, total attention on this person, care, interest, warmth. So while I'm looking around at the other vacuum cleaners, I notice that there are all kinds of little signs on the wall, kind of like little admonition, like what you might cut out of the Reader's Digest, uh, or the Abbey Christian catalog, they say things like, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Cheerful, cheerful, upbeat little sayings all over the place. And here's this cheerful person devoting himself. So when it finally gets to be my turn and we take care of my business, I remark on his uh, cheerfulness. And in uh, psychology, the conventional wisdom is that if your mother was cheerful, you'll get to be cheerful. So I said to him, uh, did you have a cheerful mother? <laughs> and he said, no, actually my mother was a depressed alcoholic woman. <laughs> I said, did you then have a father who was... Uh, a terrific role model for you that could really sustain you, something like that. He said, no, actually my father was a wrathful man and he really beat up all his children and he also had alcohol problems. I said, it's a wonder you grew up so good. He said, I didn't grow up good. I grew up terrible. He said, I had terrible school problems. I never learned to read. I've read one book in my whole life. Um, I had terrible learning problems. They just put me ahead one year after the other because I was getting so big. And I was, a, I was in high school. I got into trouble with drugs. And I finally graduated from high school. I didn't have anything to do. I bounced around for a few years. I was miserable. I was angry. I was hanging out with bad people. Finally, I didn't know what to do with myself. I went into the Marines. And so the first thing they did after they gave us our, issued us uniforms is they gave us haircuts. And they sat us down, six people in a room, and they gave us those marine haircuts all at the same time. 
that they said we were facing backwards uh, in this haircutting room, looking at a wall, a blank wall, while they cut our hair. And said everybody finished at the same time with those machines, and they turned all six of us around at the same time, and we all looked in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror, and there was nobody there whose story I knew. And he said, in that moment, I changed my life. There was no one there whose story I knew. I didn't recognize myself. Isn't that a far out story? He said, I decided to have a different life. And since then, so I did all the in-betweens, I don't know, but that's an extraordinary story. Once we stop identifying with our whole story, we're absolutely free. We can do whatever we want. It's incredible. You see why I tell everybody it's a vacuum cleaner store, because I'm pretty sure everybody would want to go there and hang out with him. I think he has some great wisdom. One reason that metta practice works is we stop telling ourselves our story over and over again. Instead of telling the story, we make our intentions. While busily, steadfastly, sincerely making our resolves for our own well-being, for the well-being of other people, the mind is not retelling the story. Just stopping telling the story, just allowing the mind to settle and concentrate, because the story stirs it all up, really allows us to connect with the pleasure of our essential nature, of our essence. Why should we fan the flames of our discontent by telling the story all over again? That's why the sequential structure of metta practice works. That's why, for most people, it's very helpful to start with some benefactor about whom one can really feel enthusiastic and involved and engaged in wishing well, and with oneself, because we really want to be happy, where we can most engage and most work in a clear way and develop some amount of concentration, some amount of calm, some amount of one-pointedness, some amount of clarity in the mind so that we can connect with that feeling of metta that's part of our essence. As we do that, start to feel wonderful. I mean, really, metta is falling in love with ourself and eventually with all beings through the wonderful feelings of clarity and ease and of falling in love. So that as one begins to really uh, connect those feelings of metta and feel wonderful, one begins to be able to enlarge the circle of metta recipients, so to speak, On the energy of the good feeling of that metta, it's as if as we open the field of attention from ourselves to our, and our benefactors, to our well-loved friends. Usually our life partners are in the category of well-loved friends. They're usually benefactors of people towards whom we have unequivocal good feelings. Most of us are in relationship with people towards whom we have very good feelings and some glitches. Nobody has relationships that I know about that are without some glitches. 
What happens, I think, in our lives as we struggle in our relationships is we tend to focus on the difficult part and we forget the whole rest of the part of the person. One of the things that happens as the mind and heart are content and relaxed in metta practice is when we open the attention to, say, our good friends who are in that category, their irritating small points become just really small. We see the whole person and the heart opens to them and we say, well, you know, this or that has been a point of contention with us, but really the whole person is wonderful. And we're able to do that really on the energy of the metta because it's as if the mind has to make a decision. I can either continue to feel wonderful generating metta and include these people in my circle, or I can decide to take up the standard of my irritation and cut myself off from that good feeling. So we don't do that to ourselves. That's why sequentially it works. We have to make a choice. Will I continue to feel happy? Or will I take up my old grudge and cut myself off from the possibility of being happy? For the most part, if the happiness feels good enough, we're willing to let the grudges go. And what happens as you work out and out with it, expanding the circle of the meta circle, each time that we include a new group of people or a new category, it's as if the mind has to think for a minute, well, do I want to do this? having a good time feeling happy, and in order to include these people, in order to include these people and still feel happy, I'll have to give up the grudges. Forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom, essentially. And each time you get to make that choice. That's why, actually, it's not such a good idea maybe to begin to work with people who are in the category of enemies who have really, really hurt you a lot, until there's some fair degree of rapture and, and, and uh, uh, pleasure and metta that's present so that when the mind makes that decision, it has the energy to make the decision. Say, no, I'd rather keep this good feeling. I'm not going to let anything disturb my good feeling. There's a way in which I think sometimes we are um, ion machines. You know how people sometimes buy ion machines to put in their house that they plug it in and then it generates a certain kind of ions that make you feel good like you live at the seashore or something. We are ion machines. We radiate certain kind of feelings from us. I think we are. Um, When Sharon taught the other day the benefits of metta practice and told about the benefit of um, people loving people who are metta practitioners I think that's because people who are working to be generating loving kindness really have a certain air about them. People do love them. They're easy to be with. They're not frightening. And they are the people who are sitting in the middle of that. I think to myself, if we are ion machines giving off certain kinds of ions, certain sorts of vibes, we are sitting in the middle of that pool of vibes. And if we are radiating good vibes, then we're sitting in the middle of that. If we're radiating ill will, we're sitting in the middle of that. It doesn't make any sense to radiate ill will and sit in the middle of it. There's a certain way in which as the metta builds in the mind and the energy of it is so pleasant 
that when aversion arises in the mind on the thought of somebody who's been difficult or actually meeting someone who's been difficult, it just kind of dissolves in the energy of that metta. Rapture really dissolves aversion. And we're able to be all right with that person, if not love them or even offer them good wishes, certainly to respond with compassion to their pain. So that's something about uh, why it might be valuable for us to think about including the enemy, working with forgiveness. People might wonder, though, about the other difficult category, enemy, what we did today, and all beings, what we'll get up to tomorrow. What about why all beings and how all beings? A better question to ask is why not? It's actually the easiest thing to do. It's much harder to start to build limits and say, okay, almost all beings, but not those. Because then you have to remember which one's not. It's, sort of, it's easier. It's easier to just say, okay, everybody, all beings. And I have to remember, okay, these are the good ones, these are not the good ones. It's too hard. Sometimes people think that it sounds like a certain degree of moral laxness. How can I indiscriminately wish well for all beings as something that doesn't seem right about not bearing ill will towards some terrible people like dictators in the world? It does not mean not taking a certain moral stand. It does not mean not acting on it. it doesn't mean not supporting certain ethical or moral values, speaking out against oppression. As a matter of fact, it means all of those things. It probably means doing them with a mind that's clear and steady and probably more effective. The question is how to do that. How do we get to be able to do that? Because often we feel so separate from people. When people talk about non-separateness, that we are all one and we're all interconnected, but sometimes it's hard to grasp that. So there are certain ways that you can think about it. In a certain sense, we're all in the same boat, like those uh, prisoners in Huntsville, Texas. We're all going to die, and we'd all like to be happy. And between now and the end of our lives, we're all crossing this minefield. Because really, that's what, that's what we're doing in a certain way. I mean, not to say that there aren't joys and wonderful pleasures in life and beauty and art and all of those things. But essentially, life from the beginning to the end is a potential minefield, or a minefield of potential catastrophes. We keep losing each other, losing loves, losing hopes, losing dreams, losing health. It's all really loss. And we're all doing that. And when we realize that, really have a sense of maybe closer kinship with all folk. 
Sometimes we think only special people can do that kind of consciousness. You probably have read interviews with Mother Teresa where people have asked her, how can she take care of people who look so distressed in such distressing situations, people sick or deformed or in a terrible shape in their last days of life. And she says, everyone to me looks like Jesus. I think they do. Well, they think it's special people because the, uh, the Dalai Lama is a special person talks about the Chinese as his friends. My friends, the enemies, the Chinese. And he's really trying to free Tibet. But I read an article, an interview that a friend of mine did with him, where he said, I don't know how it's going to work out. I hope that Tibet gets restored. If it does, I'll go back there and live there. Maybe if it doesn't, he said, someday I'll live in China. He said, they have some very wonderful old Buddhist monasteries in China. I think that's so far out. That's really far out. That's wonderful. It was the best part of that article. So they have wonderful Buddhist monasteries in China. I know people who wouldn't buy a Volkswagen 50 years after World War II because they... But sometimes we think to ourselves, well, that was Mother Teresa, that's the Dalai Lama, but a normal person, a regular person can't do that. I think regular people can do that. There's a a young woman named Ona who's a part of um, the Sangha at Spirit Rock and comes to um, classes with her mother. Um, Ona, as, at this moment, is in uh, UC San Francisco Hospital and uh, had uh, received a bone marrow uh, transplant um, three weeks ago. Is recuperating from that, and all the signs look good. It's a very, very painful procedure, but she had uh, an acute form of leukemia and was dying. And uh, she and her mother, over these many months of waiting to find an, a matching donor, were coming to Spirit Rock, and they were part of our group there. And finally, uh, in a very wonderful way, out of a million and a half people whose bone marrow is registered in the marrow registry, someone matched hers. And I don't know if you know about how that works, but um, when it matches, the person who matches is informed of the match, but not at all coerced into giving the donation. They might have signed up in the, in the program, but <clears throat> there's no coercion. They just tell them that there's a 22-year-old woman somewhere who who matches, and then that person makes a decision. Well, they matched. And somewhere, someone said, I'll do it. But the way that the bone marrow transplants work is that you can't know who the donor is. So you just have to know that it's going to happen. And then it's a very complex procedure where the recipient goes to the hospital a week before and has three days of intense chemotherapy and three days of intense radiation, killing all of their bone marrow. At that point, they're living on transfusions and the expectation that this other person's bone marrow is coming. 
So, because they've essentially killed all their bone marrow because it's not good bone marrow. And it's very painful, the chemotherapy, the radiation. And uh, the uh, owner's mother told, told us that um, on the night before the, which is when the transplant was going to happen, so two people came in the room uh, where Ona was in the hospital and her mother was there who had been the couriers who fly the bone marrow from wherever it's donated to San Francisco. Two couriers carry it cross-country. All she knows is that the donor was a man and it was snowing where the donation happened. You can't know anything else. And her mother said the, donor, the couriers came into the room and they said, uh, relax, the marrow is here. They're just getting it ready downstairs. She said it was a totally a spiritual experience. She said those two people, those two couriers, looked like angels, looked like ministering angels. Said so they came in, they plug her up with, with the into her um, shunts and tubes that are already in her body. They match the numbers. They read off my numbers of this, your numbers of that. Said so it was just like launching some sort of nuclear rocket or something. I put my key in, you put your key in. Turn, turn. She said it was a totally a spiritual event. You can watch the stuff go in, and Ona's probably going to live because of someone somewhere that she doesn't know. And she said, you know, the whole rest of my life, I could look at anybody and think this could be my person. You don't know who's your person. You might look at somebody in a plane. You think that could be my person, or this could be my person. In a curious way, we could be each other's person in very intimate ways and not know each other. It's such an amazing way to hold each other. If we can't know which of us is responsible for donating our life to us, giving us our life back, then we love everybody. It's such an expansive consciousness. generally held that bodhisattva practice would be hard to do, that it's hard to think of everyone with kindness, with affection, with hopes for their well-being. I actually think it's easier than anything else. We think, well, so many beings are distressing, or so many people beings seem different or not worthy. easier, it seems, sometimes to just think about your small circle and take care of them. It's hard to discriminate. I had a very extraordinary experience last time I was in Barry in the fall, in October. I was flying back to San Francisco. I haven't told this story ever. I was flying back to San Francisco. I flew from Boston to Chicago and again from Chicago to San Francisco. About an hour out of Chicago, it's the only time it's ever happened to me, and I've flown so many times and all over the world. And the pilot came on and said, there's no cause for alarm, but uh, our, uh, one of our uh, hydraulic systems isn't working, but we have lots of hydraulics, we've got a few backups, but uh, it doesn't seem like a good idea to go over the Rockies without all of our hydraulics working. So we're just going to turn around and go back to Chicago. And no cause for alarm. In the meantime, the plane turns around. 
And I said, we'll be back in Chicago in 40 minutes. So I feel a little bit fluttering in the heart, not so comfortable, but I happen to have with me Joseph's new book. which I was reading at the time. And I figured, well, I'll just keep reading the book. So I picked up the book at the, and opened it up, and I read, Dealing with Difficult Emotions. <laughs> when you're dealing with difficult emotions, you should not try to distract yourself <laughs> by doing something else. I said, okay, Joseph, I put away the book. (laughs) We continue along. Then it gets serious. Then they say, please um, take all the pens out of your pockets, take your eyeglasses off, take your shoes off. The flight crew will now collect your shoes. Flight crew will now show you the brace yourself position that you see in those folders where you brace yourself. And you always hope, I hope that never happens to me. This is the brace yourself position, give in the shoes, take out the pens, take off your glasses. It's alarming. And they say, it's probably going to be all right, but we're just going to do all this stuff. And uh, so I began to do metta. And I have 13 people in my immediate family. So I can, it's, an, it's a list that I know well because I say it a lot. So I start in, may Colin be happy, may Eric be happy, may Owen be happy, may Emmy be happy. I have my 13 people and I know it really well. And I do that a few times and plane's going down now. We're landing in Chicago and I do my list and I do it a few times and then I finish, but we still weren't down. <laughs> so I do again my list, but we're still not down. So then I start to enlarge my list a little bit because I fear I've got a little bit more time. I could think a few more people into my list, okay? A few more people. But I'm still not down. And then I had the thought, look out, we're almost down. And I realized that in 30 seconds, I would either be dead or not dead. It was the most amazing thing. that's never happened to me before. Because either I would be or I wouldn't be. And I was actually pretty calm. It's a good practice to do. But I decided it, I had used up all my people in my 13. I'd said a few more. And it got complicated. So I did. May all beings be happy. 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 It's the easiest thing. You don't have to remember who's in your circle, who's out of your circle. <laughs> Especially when you, you think in 30 seconds I could be dead. Why well, you think about these ones in, these ones out. It's just much easier to do everybody. So we didn't crash. The, uh, the runway was full of fire engines and emergency equipment. It was pretty exciting. We got out and got on another plane and went back. It was scary. I had another interesting experience with Meta on the... <laughs> this is the last one. This is not hair-raising. This is actually... Uh, it was actually quite a wonderful experience. It was Thanksgiving Day, and in California we teach a, um, a long retreat every year um, 
in November, December, and it's always over Thanksgiving Day, so all these folks have come. And on Thanksgiving Day, just as here on Thanksgiving Day, there's a special meal and a special talk and a special day. And, and I was doing the talk on that day because it, I like to do that. It's my special day. And I was in a very happy mood. I was very thankful. I'm thankful to be there and thankful for my practice and thankful for my life. And so the talk was about metta and about giving thanks and that essentially in our practice we really are thanking our life. We're allowing it, not fighting with it. That this is really thank you practice in a certain way. To practice without bitterness and without rancor is to say thank you. Somebody said to me, what about the stuff in your life that, that's really been troublesome or that you really don't want? I said, well, then you say no thank you. <laughs> I mean, but, but really there's a, there's a spirit of allowing in the heart that makes, that makes life manageable and peaceful. And so at the end of the talk, um, I, I suggested that we all sit and see if we could generate feelings of well-being and loving for each other. And we all sat quietly, as is our wont. And then I suggested to people that they recite to themselves their list of the people that are on their meta list. You know, each of us have a list of, I have my list of my 13, and then around them, and around them, and around them. So I suggested to people that they sit quietly and they recite, instead of all their long phrases, just the list of the names, their personal liturgy. Eric, Colin, Leah, Nathan, Brace, etc., etc., etc. And we did that for a while quietly. And then I said, quite breaking with tradition, I said, you know what? Why don't we just, I'll ring the bell, and for a while we'll just say our names out loud. Just the same thing, but recite your liturgy out loud. Just to yourself. It's not for everybody else. It's just for yourself. So I rang the bell, and we all started. You hear mumble, mumble, mumble. Everybody's very, it's wonderful. Everybody's got a liturgy of their list, and you know that that's their inner population of their heart. And here I am, and I'm sitting here, and I'm sitting between my friend James Barras and my friend Jack Cornfield. And we haven't talked to each other about doing that. I quite spontaneously thought of doing it at the moment out loud. So I'm saying my list of Eric, Colin, Nathan, Leah, Grace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying their things, Jane, Adam, so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And I'm really just saying my names and remembering my names, but I'm hearing what they're saying, kind of in the back of my, on the periphery of my awareness. And by and by, I realize that we're saying each other's names. Jack and James and Sylvia and Sharon and Joseph and Carol and da 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 and all the people that populate our mutual lives and I'm saying them and they're saying them and we, yeah, it's coming from me from all sides and I had this wonderful sense that if each of us just said our own names that somehow our circle of names would overlap on the circle of names of the next person if the whole world said their circle of names everybody's circle of names would flood over on the next person's circle of names and the next person's circle and the next person, the next person, the next person. And actually what we would be doing is we would all be saying, may all beings be happy. 
And we would be doing it from the perspective of our personal lives. So I think it works either way. Can really do, may all beings be happy and relate in some way to the enormity of the shared experience that we all have with each other. We can just start with our personal circle and know that it overlaps the personal circles of everyone else. And that either way, all the circles converge on each other. That we really all hold each other up that way. And really, it's the easiest way to be. Seems like loving all beings, loving people who have hurt us, it'd be a hard thing to do. Forgiving them would be a hard thing. Not loving, not forgiving, that's what's hard. He was right about Tom, about forgiveness being the price you have to pay for freedom. When I say price, it sounds like a hard thing. Maybe we should change it to forgiveness as a road to happiness, or the key to happiness. Or saying thank you is the key to happiness, or something like that. But really we do it for ourselves, and there's a way to be happy. So let's sit a little bit. This talk was given by Silvio Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 8, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.